Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson, and I am here again with Dustin. Dustin, welcome back. Hi there. Good to be back. So, as we mentioned last show, this is the new format. Dustin is co-hosting, so hopefully you'll be hearing him for many episodes in the future. And today we are going to talk about belonging to design groups. Um, Dustin belongs to one. Which, what's the name of yours, Dustin? The Board Game Designers Guild of Utah. And I belong to the Game Makers Guild of Boston and also the Southern Mass Game Designers. So, Dustin, what... Let's start from the beginning. How, how did you end up joining your guild? So, the, the Board Game Designers Guild of Utah has been around for quite a long time. It's, it's probably one of the older guilds that, that I've heard of. But I, I was really hesitant to, to jump in and, and do anything with that. Uh, I've got a, a family member who's into uh, the board game scene and, and designing, and, and he's actually done uh, quite well for himself. And I invited him over for, for dinner one day, and he was talking to me about uh, the guild and, and just really encouraging me to, to reach out and, and participate in things like that and talked about the benefits of it. And I'm, I'm such an introvert that that sounded like a, a really uh, difficult thing to do. But I decided to follow his advice and jumped in, and it's been fantastic. I, I've really enjoyed being a part of the guild and have tried to put a lot of effort into my participation in that. You know, it's it's interesting though when when I first arrived, I, I did kind of feel very awkward about it. And so if, if others have have made an attempt um, and, and felt some of that hesitation, I, I can totally relate to that. Um, it, it took maybe a a couple weeks before it started to feel like, hey, this this could really work. I I think that there's a lot of benefits to it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like joining any new group. As soon as you come in, there's all these people that, as far as you can tell, have been there literally forever when right. they might have shown up a day before you. You don't really know. It's just you always have this sense that everyone else is so tight-knit in here and you're the outsider. But if you just keep with it a couple times, then all of a sudden someone new shows up and they're the new person and you're the one that, to them, has been there forever. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty much the same way for me with um, the Boston Game Makers Guild. I had heard about them which I, I think I, I mentioned this last episode when I was going over like how I got into the whole design thing. But um, when I first got into game design, um, my mother, actually, she's very supportive and always likes to start doing research and how can I help you, what can you do, can you do this? And one of the things she found was Boston Fig, which is the Boston Festival of Indie Games, which at that point I think it was maybe only its second or third year. And um, so I had gone to that just as an attendee, and that is... I'm still not entirely sure on the connections. I don't think the groups are actually connected. They're just run by the same people, so there's that interconnectedness. But um, hmm. So the Game Makers Guild, the guy who runs that, Tim Blank, who has been on the show a couple times, he runs the Game Makers Guild and runs the tabletop side of the of Boston Fig. So there's there's a lot of Game Makers Guild members there. It's promoted heavily and stuff. So that's how I found out about the guild existing. And then looked into it, and I was like, oh, you know, this is, like, you just, you show up, they have twice a month meetings. So I went to one, and that was right after I started the podcast, so I kind of used that as my in to start conversations, like I had mentioned last time. And, um, yeah, it started off, you're the, you're the new person, and you're going there, and it's strange, but it's, they have a, they have a pretty tight structure. Like, you go in with your game, and then they'll pair up, usually two games, depending on game length and number of players and stuff. 
to pair up two games and then add in some extra players who didn't bring a game and you play one game, you give feedback, then you play the other game. So it's it's very structured and I think that kind of thing really helps for new people because you don't need to really introduce yourself. You don't need to find people to play your game. You just, you know, this is my game, I'm signed up and they group you together and you're kind of ready to go. So that worked really well for that. And then the other guild, the Southern Mass uh, game designers that I helped start, it wasn't it wasn't my idea, I'll admit that. But um, Brian Compter, who has also been on the show numerous times, we actually we met at TotalCon in person. And it was very strange because TotalCon's a, a local convention, so it's mostly uh, New England area people. And I was there playing some games with some people I knew, and he was also playing. And, you know, nice guy, we're playing some games. And then he's like, oh, you know, want to look at my game? And he brings out a game that had beaten me in a Game Crafter contest. I had managed second place to his game. And I was like, <laughs> I know you. I had no idea that he was even in Massachusetts at the time. You know, it's just an internet contest. Could have been anywhere in the world. So, and we started talking about like that contest and got to know each other. And he's like, oh, I'm looking to start a game design group. And he's, he's based in Foxborough. So if you know Massachusetts, that's Southern Mass, which is near where I am, but not really near TotalCon. So that was also interesting that we're closer to each other than to where we met. But yeah, so... He was starting a group, so I joined up with them, and now that's growing pretty well. We've actually siphoned off a lot of members from the Game Makers Guild, who it's easier to get, because now we're on the southern, southeast Massachusetts instead of in Boston, so it's a little easier for some people to get to. But um, not that we stole the members, they go to both meetings, so there's, there's a lot of overlap <laughs> now, which means the people that go to both get three or four meetings a month, which is pretty useful. But that... Um, that's a much less structured format, which I think part of that's just we started off with very few people, so we never really structured it as tightly as the Game Makers Guild. So it's very much we start at 5.30, roughly, like show up when you can, depending on your schedule. And we'll usually go till 10.30 or 11, depending on how long games are going, people's schedules. It's in, it's in a game store, so they're usually open that late anyway, running... Um, it's X-Wing tournaments is usually on the nights we're there. So we'll come in, they let us stay for free, so we usually try to buy some food or buy games there just to help support them. Um, it's a really nice place, they got a lot of space. We go on nights that's not crowded, like we don't try to go on Friday Night Magic or Dungeons & Dragons Night or anything where they're filled up, you know, don't try to take table space away from their paying customers. But um, yeah, it's very loosely formatted, people show up, if they have a game, you get a group together, you play, you play another thing. So the nice thing about that is if I have a bunch of games I need played, I can usually get like two, three, or even four designs in in a night. Whereas with the Boston Game Makers Guild, you bring a game and you get to play that, and that's it. Which it's a different kind of feedback and different structure. So different types of games will work for different ones. A lot of short games I can get in at the uh, Southern Mass designers really easily. Yeah, that's nice. And you guys meet for for quite a long time. So you say from five to ten thirty or eleven. Uh, in Utah, we, we meet from about 7 to 10, um, and there, there are several locations that, that play out. And so if, if you want to get several in uh, each month, you can attend different locations. Yeah, the 7 to 10 is much closer to the Game Makers Guild there. The start time there is 7.30, and then because they're they're in a space at Emerson College, so they have like 10 o'clock, you have to be out of the building, lights off, doors locked. So it's, it's very much <laughs> yeah. like you have this time, get started, get going, make sure you switch to the next game which um, makes it real, like, you can't bring a game more than 90 minutes, and that 90 minutes includes getting feedback. So if you have a long game, you're really only going to play a part of it, which, I mean, for a lot of early tests, all you need is to play a part of it to make sure it's working. But 
like at the at the other one, I've been able to get in two-hour games. Although usually, if it hit two hours, it's because the game has a problem and we should stop anyway. But it's it's nice to have that more relaxed feeling. And then as the group grows, we've been able to get like multiple games going at the same time. So if people have shorter games, they can kind of mix in and do different stuff. So, so how long have you been uh, a member of your guild? I have been with my guild, I think, about two years. Yeah, I think two and a half for Game Maker's Guild, and then I'm not even sure if it's Southern Mass. Maybe a year less, a year and a half, something like that. I honestly yeah, don't know, good. actually. You know, one of the things that I recognize in being a part of the, the guild is, is not so much just the feedback, which is wonderful, but I also get a sense of responsibility or ownership or accountability with things that I say I'm, I'm going to do. And so if, I, if I've if i shown my game and there, there are certain things that really need to change, um, I feel like before I can bring that game back, I, I, I ought to have addressed the, the issues that have come up. Whereas if I, if I didn't have that accountability, I probably wouldn't feel that same pressure. And it's a good kind of pressure, and so I find that that drives me in my designs. Yeah, when I was thinking about this topic, I was like, I was trying to think, like, well, what are some of the benefits of belonging to a design group? Obviously, the feedback is great, and, like, number one is getting playtesters, but that you don't need to be part of a group to get playtesters. You can get playtesters other ways. But I think, like, the the scheduled meetings, it's a deadline, and it's like, we're going to meet next Monday. You should mm-hmm. have some update, or you should have your prototype printed out, or, you know, you, have, you need something done by that Monday. So it works similar to, like, um, uh, game contests, which one of the things I really enjoyed about doing those in the past was it has a deadline it says this date you need something done to submit or you're not in it which sometimes you don't make it but even missing that deadline you still got a lot more done than you would have if you didn't have a deadline right and we we've even got an expectation when somebody brings their game that it can't be exactly the same as as it was prior and so there there needs to be some iteration some something specific that you're testing this time not you don't just bring your game to, to play to, to get more eyes on the same thing that's already been seen. I know different groups have different rules about new members. How, how do you guys structure that? Do you let new members bring a game, or is it a, you have to come so many times before you can bring your own design? Yeah, so we, we want new members to, to come and participate early on. We want to be really friendly and, and welcoming, but we do have a, a three-attendance uh, playtest rule. Uh, before they can bring a game, and and it's not it's not a hard and fast rule. If if they bring their their game and and nobody else happens to have a game there, or or there's you know so many people ready to play test and there's not enough games to go around, then we'll play their game. And and so it's it's not that they're restricted as much as there there's priority on on others. Um, yeah. And so the, that's typically the way that it's structured with us. Yeah. Ne- neither of mine have any restriction like that but some people assume it so game maker scale they'll come in and be like oh did you bring a game like oh no i didn't think i could so if if you have a group it's important to kind of set that up out front like you know you're expected to come so many times before you bring a game or bring your game the first time but especially with uh southern mass because that's a very small group that we're still trying to build up so if um if new people come we're usually like if we're not already in a game we'll be like oh do you have a game like let's get that to the table right now and we try we try to really push like we're a great place you should come back but uh yeah. game makers guild it's got a it's got a big enough pull that it's it does all right and doesn't really need to push for new members although new members are great and we always are happy to have new members 
And and I hear, you know, other members reach out to these new people who come by and they'll always ask them about their games, which is nice, even if there's not a chance to play it. Um, yeah. Have them spread it out on the table and, and describe what they're working on. Um, sometimes they're looking for advice. Sometimes they just want to show their game. And so we, we certainly want to meet them where they're at. Yeah, that's, that's another great benefit of when you, like going to a single meetup, even if like you're allowed to play your game or not, you you get some play testers, you know, it's good. But as you keep going back, especially regularly, and you become a member of the community, it it really is, it's more than just getting a play test in of this game. It's talking about design, it's learning about contests, learning about conventions, uh, even making close friends that you end up carpooling with to save money and save on hotels to go places. And just that talk of design, even if you don't get your game played, even if you don't have your game made yet, you can still talk to somebody like, oh, I'm having trouble figuring out this worker placement thing. And they say, oh, did you ever play this game? You should look into it. And it's just that community can generate a lot of ideas without even any design work being done. Yeah. You know, as, as I think about going to SaltCon this last year, that's our big local board game convention here in Utah. And, and we've got a few other smaller ones, but at SaltCon... I hadn't even met all of the, the members of the guild because, like I said before, we've got so many locations and, and they're in different parts of Utah. But because we've got this online community uh, as well uh, as the in-person meetups, once SaltCon came up, I, I felt like I had all of these people who I knew, even though I didn't know them you know, well. And it was so fun to, to meet together and to, to talk in, in person and to, to play games and, and just catch up. And that sense of community made SaltCon even better for me. Uh, and it was a fun convention, but, but just having that connection with so many people was awesome. Yeah, it's, again, like you're, especially if it's your first time at a convention, you're going into a very large group of people. And if you don't know anyone, you can be, even if you're an outgoing person, it can be hard to get a group together to play your game or to know what to do. So already knowing a bunch of people in that area really helps. Right. So what are some specific benefits you have had from belonging to the guild as far as your game designs go? One is that you get a perspective that is not your own. Um, I mean, you can look at your game and, and develop it over time, and, and that's great. But to, to get other designers' eyes on that game uh, who think differently than you, who have played different games than you, who have uh, created solutions for their games that are different than solutions you've created for your own... Um, so I think all of that's a big benefit. In addition to that, I find that oftentimes when I'm giving feedback to somebody else for their game, I'm resolving concerns for my own game in, in my own head. And had I not verbalized some of those things to them, I, I never would have recognized the solution for my own game. Yeah, sometimes just talking about game design helps solve problems. I know on my own, we, um, Auction Comics is a game I've been working on for for a while now, a couple of years at this point, actually. And it, um, just the other, I just tested it the other night and it went really well. But before that, at my Southern Mass meetup, I didn't, I didn't have a new prototype made. It hadn't changed yet. And I, I just knew I had to fix a problem, but I hadn't had a chance to get around to fixing it or even figured out how. So after the meeting, I was just talking with some of the other members and saying like, oh, this, this is the problem I'm having. Does anyone have any ideas on what I could do? And like we talked a bit and someone suggested like, oh, what if you took the sale cards out and made them buyers and had this other thing? I was like, yeah, that might work. So uh, the next week I wrote that up, made some new cards and just played it. Well, I actually played it a couple times and it worked really well. It's much closer to well, quote unquote done. It's one of those designs <laughs> I think I'm going to be chasing forever. But it's, it's definitely it made a huge improvement and it wasn't even from playtesting. It was just 
know, spitballing some ideas, and it's it just really helps having a community to talk to. You can't you can't design in a void because your game is unless you're making a solo game that only you play, which is great if that's what you want to do. Go right ahead. But uh, if you want a game, especially if you want to put it on the market, having a lot of feedback from a lot of people is very very helpful. Yeah, and I think even if you are designing a solo game, having a, a guild to or, or playtesters in general, just to sit down and, and play it and think differently than you about your, your game is really the way to go. Yeah. Uh, I had talked before about a sense of responsibility, ownership, and accountability, and, and really the advice around that is don't just go and attend the guild. Uh, try to invest yourself in, in part of that because the more invested you are in the community, um, I, I think the more you'll get out of it. Yeah, definitely. There's, I know for, for the Boston group, there's there's like a, a leadership. There's the I forget the names of everyone, but there's the treasurer and the other jobs that I can actually not think of the uh, the name for <laughs> any of them. But there's, yeah. a, there's a group of like four or five people, and they they are the leaders, quote unquote. And so they each have different jobs. So some some design guilds they they have a need for people to run things, um, or maybe you can start a new thing. Like maybe they want to do outside events or maybe they want to do representation at cons and you could spearhead that initiative and help grow the guild bring more people in because more people means more playtesters means more designs means more ideas yeah we we've got sort of a, a leadership structure I, I hesitate to to call it leadership it's more we've got different chairs um like a marketing chair or a, a business meeting chair i mean there, there's some some different uh, positions that people can volunteer for or, or be voted in, um, but we don't have like a, a board. Um, we we don't really even have a, a treasurer. We don't take any money of, of any kind, um, so it's completely free at every end, and so nobody's handling any any money, which is great. Yeah, for for Southern Mass, we don't have any dues or anything. But Game Makers Guild, they have you don't have to be a member to come to the meetings. But they have a membership system that's fifty dollars a year. You get a T-shirt, which is nice. But um, also, they they've got some deals with local stores to get some discounts on like gaming space and stuff. But the main thing is they started a curation process where if so on any night when you bring a game, um, they have little slips of paper that they'll pass out to your playtesters, and they can write down if. Do you think it's ready to go on to the next stage of curation? So the first is just get three people to say, yeah, I think this should move on, which very easy to do. Then to move beyond that, you have to have a membership. Like I said, it's $50 a year, which you know, is relatively cheap. It basically comes out down to $2 a meeting if you attend all the meetings. Um, so the next step is they plan a specific night. So it's announced that this night is going to be an intensive playtest. So only a select group of games that have made it to the second level are going to get intensively playtests, where a single group of players plays a game repeatedly as long as they can in the two-and-a-half-hour meeting, which for longer games is sometimes once. But for short games, you can get in three, four, five games, and you can really drill down and focus on certain problems or issues you're having, see if it can consistently play well. And then if you make it through that, again, people fill out a form and they say, I think it should move on to the next stage. And the next stage is blind playtesting, where they have a group of players that have not played your game before. So that's usually on a regular design night. And they just say, like, anyone who hasn't played this game should go into this group. So we just 
select from who's there. And they have to play the game from your rules without you helping at all, which can be a nerve-wracking experience when they skip just that super important little line in the setup that makes the entire game, and you just sit there watching them not do it right. But that's that's what you learn, that that rule is really important. You have to really push that in your rules so that they, they get it. And then after after that, if people think it did well enough to move forward from the blind play test, they have one last test that is the leadership plays it with... Um, with other players that are interested specifically in that kind of game. So you're having your target audience play it and just... It's more of a final check to make sure like it didn't unnecessarily get through any earlier stages. Like Everything works. Nothing's problematic. And then it gets a seal of approval from the guild, which, I mean, seals of approval and winning contests mean certain things to certain people and are pointless to other people. I just saw something on Twitter where people were complaining about putting putting podcast awards on your box because they don't like the look of it on the box. And I, I get the sentiment that, like, why, why do all these little awards have to be on the box that no one has ever heard of these? But on the other hand, it's, it's something they won. You know, you, books, movies, always put awards they won on the cover to help sell them in their second, third edition, you know? Yeah. We, we've had a lot of discussion about that in our guild. We, we have had a, a curation process in the past, and, and we don't right now. Um, and a lot of our, our thought was, what, what's the what's the purpose of it? Um, and, and we've had those same discussions about, do people even want it on the box? And, and some people really do, and some people don't. And I, I reached out to uh, several publishers, uh, Jamie Stegmeier being one, and James Matthew before his uh, unfortunate passing, and and asked a, a number of questions to, to several of these guys, and, and they all came back and saying they wouldn't necessarily, as publishers, recognize that as being anything special um, it's great that a guild thinks that that your game is is wonderful but it, it wouldn't necessarily lend more eyes to it and so w- when we talked about that we recognized that if we wanted to have a, a seal of approval it would be more about this this game has gone through this process more than we as a guild approve this and and it's a good game yeah i mean even even the largest design guild in the world is still a very small thing compared to the market. So I don't think any of them have enough clout that putting a seal on it says, this guild approved this game would mean anything to most people. Yeah. But I think to a degree, the fact that it, it has anything at all is more than not having it, you know? Like, I don't think yeah, it's necessarily well box-worthy, but if you're going to a publisher and you say, yeah, you know, this guild, like, okay, this, so it went through a process... That's something. It still has to be a good game. It still has to be something they're interested in. So it's definitely not the first thing they look at. But if you're looking at two similar-ish games, market-wise, price-wise, you're interested in both. And one says, "Well, I went through this, you know, eight-month process to say this game is pretty good." That's something. Same with winning like a design contest. You know, it it's not it's not the most important thing, but it's something. Yeah, and I think. Well, I would guess over time, if if a guild were to make a name for itself in producing great games, that that seal or or that curation process uh, could possibly become more valuable. Uh, just like I, I think some design contests carry a little bit more clout than than others do. Yeah, I mean the Cardboard Edison Award is really picking up. I'd say let's see Cardboard Edison, maybe Hippo Dice, and mm-hmm. uh, the Ion Award. Those are probably the most popular like game design contests that I can think of which have, I'd say they have some clout, but I think the more beneficial thing to them is that a lot of the judges are 
publishers and industry people. So it's not even yeah. so much that winning it is going to get you in front of those people. It's that you already were in front of those people because you were in the contest, and they liked it, so they voted you through, and that's why you won, because the publishers already like your game. So it's it's less about winning and having that seal of excellence or approval, and more it's a way to get in front of those people, which is what I'm trying to work on with the uh, the Board Game Workshop contest, which will become a showcase. Yeah, and... And it's a it's a nerve wracking process to to be in front of those judges. I, I've been a finalist in the Ion Award, and even though all the the publishers there were were really nice, it's it's certainly nerve wracking to be in front of them talking about your game. Yeah, and I just thought the Lucy Award would be the the other big one, which is um yeah I believe that's part of my Playtest Northwest, which is another design guild which I don't know much about because it's very far away from me. Yeah, that is a good one. So interestingly enough, a lot of these awards are connected, at least tangentially, to design groups. Because mm-hmm. again, designers belong to design groups, and designers start these contests, and designers become publishers. It's a very small community, so as soon as you get in in any group, you've probably got a connection to another group that has a connection to another group. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's funny how... <laughs> The whole scene seems so big, and when you really get down to it, uh, it's all connected. And it's so funny the way that if you meet somebody, you, you know somebody who knows that same person within the industry. Yeah. I mean, you especially notice it now on Twitter, which Gen Con is coming up this weekend as of this recording. So everyone on my Twitter feed is either talking about how they can't go to Gen Con or talking about how they're showing up in Gen Con in three hours. Who wants to meet up? So it's everyone is very, very connected, and especially Gen Con, the biggest convention in the U.S. for board games. I mean, it's small compared to other industries conventions. <laughs> you know, even at SaltCon, the first year that, that I attended, um, a guy nabbed me and, and my kids at the very beginning and just said, hey, come over and play my game. And we sat down, we played this game and I was asking him where he was from, and he said, from Boston. And I said, oh, do you know Chris Anderson? He's like, oh, yeah, I totally know Chris Anderson. And so even here in Salt Lake City, or in, in I guess, the roundabout area area of Salt Lake, uh, somebody was connected to you, and I, I had just met you maybe just a few months before. Yeah, I remember you telling me about that. It was uh, Jeff Johnson, right, playing uh, yeah. Moonquake Escape? Yep, that was it. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's part of the Game Makers Guild of Boston. Nice guy, he's... Oh, he's one of the leadership that I can't remember the name of. Uh, I think he's in charge of events, so like they're they're trying to expand and they're doing a lot of outside events beyond the main twice a month meetings. So they have they have um, I don't know if it's monthly or every other week. They have it. I forget where it is. Maybe at a Wegman's, but it's north of Boston, so the the North Shore people go to that one. So while my other group is not connected to Game Makers Guild, we're kind of the South Shore version of that. So you have the North of Boston group, the Boston group, and the uh, South of Boston group. And then uh, out in Western Mass, I don't know what they do. That's a whole, a different place that's very far away. And we're a small state. I mean, you're in Utah. You got tons and tons of space there. Yeah. So you're, you <laughs> said there's multiple there's multiple locations. So are those like reasonably close? Or are you talking like all over the state, like you wouldn't really go to a lot of them? I, I don't go to a lot of them, but some guild members do travel uh, in between quite a bit, especially as... Uh, design contests are, are coming up and things like that. They, they want to get more eyes on their games. Um, but I would say, I mean, 
several of them are within an hour driving distance uh, of each other. Yeah, that's not so, too bad. No, it's not too bad. I I live about 45 minutes away from the closest one anyway, so it's it's a it's a drive for me, and so that's one of the reasons I don't attend the rest of them. It, it would be even longer. Yeah, I'm about 45 minutes away from each of mine, and my work is also about 45 minutes away from each, because my work is an hour and a half away from me, which you know that's great for podcasts and less so for driving all the time, but so they're relatively convenient, but. Like I said, the North Shore stuff, that would be probably an extra hour on top of that. That's that's a bit much. Yeah. You know, one other thing I, I wanted to mention is I think playtesting play with designers is not the same thing as playtesting with the, the public. You're going to get yeah. a very different kind of feedback and, and different kinds of thoughts. And and just the, the whole experience is, is going to be different. And I think that there's huge benefits to both. And that anyone who's looking to get their game playtested, they, they really ought to identify what kind of playtesting they're wanting. Yeah, I find playtesting with designers has incredible benefits and a few drawbacks. The main drawbacks yeah. being you have to be very careful with their feedback that they're not trying to design their game and they're trying to help your game. Because a lot of designers, they have their idea and you say, like, oh, here's a theme. And they have however they would design that theme. And that's great. That's their game. But you're making your game. So you have to be very careful about what... What feedback do you take as, oh, that's a useful thing to add to my game, and what is, well, that's a different game, which is fine. I have um, one of my designs I've been working on for a long time, which if anyone follows my blog, you have heard about it endlessly, Plutocracy, which it started started off an idea. Most of my games start from an idea I heard on a podcast. So the original idea, people were talking about Imperial, which if you haven't heard of it, is a game that takes place in Europe just before World War One. And you play as, I don't know if you're actually bankers, but you're like financers trying to finance different countries and you don't care what happens and who wins. You're just trying to make the most money at this build up to war kind of situation. And the idea that players don't control like a unit or a force, you're just manipulating the whole thing was really interesting to me. And since working on it, I found out that this actually is a much more popular system than I realized and it's essentially a stock market game because in a stock market you don't own a company you're trying to manipulate all of the stocks and it's the same functional thing which I didn't I didn't realize at the beginning but I started working on plutocracy based on that and had this design and it had gone through tons and tons of iterations it's I'm kind of famous in the group for always coming back with a completely redesigned version and they say oh what is it this time I've like had rondelles three separate times it just it swings around all over the place um, and now it's swinging something else once I get the time to work on it. But I brought, basically I brought that concept into the group, not that I had invented it, but just the concept of not controlling a faction. So two other designers in the group were interested in that core concept and worked on their own games based on it. So at the start, they're like, oh, you know, this is this, inspired by Plutocracy. And then what happened is they brought those games, and those are great, interesting games, and they're very different from Plutocracy, but they have that same core conceit of like not controlling a faction and then i've so they've played my games i've played their games and now i'm bringing stuff from their games back into plutocracy and it creates this design cycle of that you can really only get with other designers because they're going to take an idea they're going to go and do something with it for months on end and it's going to change and then you're going to look at that and get a new idea that then can come back and then you can change that and it's this continuing cycle which is i mean that's how the entire design industry works is People come up with ideas. Someone else sees that idea. It inspires them. They do their own version of that idea. And that changes and changes and changes. 
and then we get new things like deck building. Yeah, that's a good example. And and there's kind of some closed feedback loops in, inside of that. This never kind of a closed circuit where it's the same people seeing it, it's the same people implementing. And so reaching outside of that into the public at large is, is nice to be able to break that cycle a little bit. Yeah, I'd say, especially if, you're, if your goal is publishing, the public is the target audience, not designers. Yeah. I mean, designers probably want your game too, but there's way more not designers than there are designers. So you, you kind of have to ground yourself and say like, oh, this is, this is what the public quote unquote expects. Um, also publishers as a different insight can think of things as a product. So you might make the most amazing game with all of this stuff, but you bring it to a publisher like, I'm not, I'm not going to make something with a thousand dice. We just can't do it. You can't ship it. You can't print it. But you need a thousand dice. And, you know, Quarriers happened, but... <laughs> yeah. It was a thing that could happen. only be made by WizKids because they're a big toy manufacturer that has the connections to all the plastic to do that many custom dice. And even yeah. then, it was, I think it was a pretty rough product from just getting that to market. You know, as you talk about plutocracy and, and the the major iterations that it's it's taken, I, I spoke last time about um, a game that was kind of an old maid variant that I was a little bit embarrassed by, and and I'm happy to say that I never brought that to the the guild, but that that game that started out as this old maid variant, um, it, it had all of these scoundrels in it that were just the the dregs of the earth kinds of of characters in it. And I, I took that idea and I created a, a Euro game out of it and called it Scoundrels. And it, it grew and grew and grew and had more parts and pieces. And it was just a, it was a huge game. And it was nice to be able to take that to the guild and whittle it down and kind of boil it down to its, its most basic parts. And it went through some major iterations to the point where I got rid of almost the entire game and just kept uh, the essence of the game in cards and was able to to not have any wooden pieces or you know player boards it was just cards and the game worked far better um and feedback from the guild and play testing and you know iterating after iterating we i was able to turn it into something that was just honestly a better game and that's the the game that ended up going to the ion award um or a finalist in the iron ion award and so it was kind of nice to to see this I mean, kind of a heart-wrenching process to, to see your game get torn apart time and time again, but it was it was great. Yeah, I remember you talking about that in uh, the Discord. Same time, I was like going through tons of versions of Plutocracy or sharing all the designs on there, and uh, I, it was a quite large game at one point, I remember. <laughs> yeah, and you had some influence on this as well. You talked about the brain versus brawn. I don't know if you remember that, but that, that had a major influence Vaguely, on, yeah. on the way this game played out. Happy to help, even if I don't remember specifically what I did. <laughs> but uh, but that's the thing. Um, I even wrote the I did the whole elegant game design thing because it's as as a player, not just a designer. Elegance is something that I really look for in a game. Like I I don't really have any specific kind of game I like. I'll play abstracts. I'll play euros. I'll play Ameritrash. I'll play big games, small games, short games, long games. It's all great as long as it's elegant. If a game has really tedious rules or I have to do a lot of like moving little slivers around like war games are probably not my thing because they generally tend to be more more fiddly than I would like but if, if something is elegant I'm all for it so in my in my own designs and any advice I give to other designers it's almost always cut it down cut it down cut it down mm -hmm. which 
I found in my own designs, I sometimes go too far. And this is where playing with designers, especially designers that have seen the game iteration after iteration. So a lot of times I'll come in and be like, okay, here's the new version. You only do this. And we play it and they're like, you went too far. You cut out too much. This isn't a game anymore. <laughs> You've got half of a mechanic. So it's, it's nice. Like usually you want, you want new perspectives on your game, but it's sometimes nice to have the same people playing iteration after iteration because they can point out like this was better last time. Like this was the wrong direction. Try something else. You can have that kind of feedback too that, I mean, you can really only get that if you have a dedicated design group, whether it's just your own local four or five people or a bigger guild. Yeah, that, that's well said. I had my family, I, I always have my family playtest my games, and I think it's, it's good to have people who will do that. And any time I would come back from a guild meeting, uh, they'd see me gut the game and, and start over, and they'd say, no, it was fine, it was fine, what, what are you doing? <laughs> and <laughs> I, I think that being able to gut that it helped me to, to recognize the game from the inside out, uh, and I was able to be more creative with it. And it takes... You get a certain uh, resiliency to having your dreams crushed in front of you as you move through design work. That first time's very rough. The second time, also tough. But the 300th time someone tells you your game is terrible, you're like, yeah, of course it's terrible. Moving on, next step. Let's make it better. No. You get used to that process very quickly if you're in a group and getting like weekly or monthly meetings. Yeah, one of the last games that I brought to the guild, um, I had the the guild members playing it and they were giving me really good feedback and and I, I was like I was taken off guard because I, I was so used to it just being torn apart that when they just like the game I'm like you got to be kidding me like I, I what do I do I was now? so surprised by it yeah I I didn't know what to do with the design at that point <laughs> yeah, it's always shocking the first time it happens although I, I mean I run into the problem of well I got to change something so I'll, I'll get a new idea I have it's very tough to stop a design even if it's close to finish you still you have ideas you're like oh what about this thing can i add this mechanic and sometimes you do you go too far so it's it's helpful to have people pull you back and say nope that w that was it back there two steps ago yeah which is why i have to focus on getting publishers to see my games and see if i can get something out into the world so that i'm not allowed to make changes anymore <laughs> yeah which that should probably be an episode we can do at some point focus on pitching and stuff yeah so is there anything else you want to say about game design groups before we sign off just that i i would encourage everyone who does game design to align with with some group uh, I, I think there's so many benefits to just being a part of it um yeah don't know what else to say <laughs> yeah so the, the last thing that i'll point out um which maybe i should have mentioned this at the start because i don't know if people listen all the way to the end but cardboard edison has a list of game design groups which I don't believe it's exhaustive, but uh, if you're looking for a group, head over there and see if there's one near you. If you have a group, go check, see if you're on it. I mean, they put a lot on it automatically, but they, they don't know about everything necessarily. So if you're not on it, let them know and they will add you to the list. And if you don't have a group and there's not a group around you, starting a group is relatively easy. If you just can find, I mean, one other person would do it, but two or three would be great, especially if you can get really committed people that want to show up once a month or weekly or whatever whatever your schedule allows. Our, um, a Southern Mast one where pretty much a monthly meetup, although if people are free, they meet up more often. So it's it's a very free-form thing. Uh, then Game Makers Guild is every other week. 
and that's just the regular schedule. So it, I think I think a regular schedule is nicer because it lets people plan ahead. The um, Southern Mass one is very freeform in every month. We throw up on Facebook a conversation like, oh, when are people free this time? And hmm. Because we're such a small group that if you put up a date that's good for one person and no one else can make it, it's just not going to happen. Whereas with Game Makers Guild, probably going to get at least 10 people there at the worst date when everyone else is at a convention or on vacation. So that doesn't matter as much. But when you're working with a really small group or starting out, it helps to be very flexible. But game design is gaining popularity everywhere. There's probably other game designers in your area. If you don't know them, why not? You should you should meet them and you should hang out and you should design games together. And that's how you start a group. It's that simple. Dustin, thank you for joining me again. This has gone well. It was a really interesting conversation. I didn't know if I had enough to talk about at the beginning, but it, it seemed to work out. Yeah, it worked out nicely. So that'll do it for this episode. Uh, Dustin, you want to do your contact info? Yeah, if you want to reach out to me uh, through Facebook, I'm Odd Fox Games. Again, that's an adjective animal. <laughs> <laughs> contribution here or if if you want to reach out through bgg uh odd fox games uh you you can you know geek mail me or whatever that way as well and on twitter i am blue cube bgs because board games is too long to fit on there uh the rest of the stuff of the show will be coming up in a second at the end credits thanks for listening that's all for this episode. The Board Game Workshop is a member of the Indie Game Report. You can check out their reviews and interviews at theindiegamereport.com. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our inventor-level supporters. Chris Turner, Vegan Al, Brad Bachelor, Roscoe Schock, Vas Cottis, and Corey Muddeman. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash theboardgameworkshop. You can follow the show on Twitter at thebgworkshop and on Facebook at theboardgameworkshop. Join the show's Discord channel to discuss episodes. You can call the show's Google Voice number at 725-222-8249 and leave a question or contributor segment for a future episode. You can get the links for these and all show notes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening.